0: Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Way. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere got their news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told them. This is You Hear It First. One of the consistently brightest spots in the MTV newsroom when I first joined back in 1996 was Nina Justman's office. Nina is a New Yorker through and through. Big smile, big laugh, big ideas and opinions. As MTV News' assignment editor, Nina was the department's first line of defense and offense for 15 years from the late 80s through the early aughts. She pitched reps for access and took the heat when they didn't like the story. She talked artists onto the red carpet and begged them off. This week, Nina recalls growing up in Greenwich Village, her stint as a CBS page, early days at a fledgling MTV News, meeting her teenage dream, David Cassidy, escorting NSYNC to the Rockefeller Center tree lighting, championing an underappreciated Dave Matthews, dinner with George Michael. That time will I am asked her out, Madonna and Britney, Mick Jagger, Elton John, and much much more.
1: I grew up in New York City, in the Village and in Chelsea, so I was a real Village kid. My parents were very Bohemian types. My father owned a cafe on MacDougal Street. My parents were. Very nuts. I mean, neurotic and crazy. I mean, but they were unique. My father was in the Second World War and when he got out, he basically said, you know, I could never work for someone. So he, he mm-hmm. automatically, he was always in his own business. My dad was a painter and my dad painted on the GI Bill after the Second World War. And my mother was like, oh, he's a fledgling photographer. And in the village in those days, it really was a bohemian enclave. Most of my friends' parents worked at NYU. So they either were professors or they were in the arts. I knew a lot of people whose parents were, you know, on television and were doing things. It was from birth. I mean, in my baby book, my favorite song was Hang On, Sloopy. All right. (laughs) I was into music from four years old. And by the time I was seven years old, I was reading TV Guide back to back and saying to my mom, I'm going to work in show business. I had a very good singing voice. If I had wanted to be anyone, I was like, oh, I want to be Barbra Streisand. You know, I want to sing. I want to be an actress. I want to be on Broadway. I want to... But I realized pretty quickly that that lifestyle wasn't for me, that I was really like a more homebody Mm -hmm. type of person and that I really didn't want my life to be revolving around show business 24-7. I knew that Mm -hmm. about myself. So I decided I'll go into television or I'll go into the arts. I went to Michigan State University, which was a disaster. Don't ask why I went there. It's a long story. I worked on a college radio station there. And so Ah. I was a DJ and I was doing college media journal, maybe. I was getting records like early, like Duran Duran and you know, saying, oh, this is really amazing. And then after I graduated college and I came back to New York immediately, I said, I really (laughs) want to work in radio. Radio is like the best. I went to some big radio conglomerate, come in all gung-ho, and the gal says to me, you have like no experience and you're going from like the sticks to Broadway. Like you can't possibly do radio. You know, it's like she totally turned me off. I was like, oh, my God, like I'm just a nothing. Like I can't do radio. I got very lucky in that my cousin was a talent agent for children in the city, and she had a friend who was hiring the entry-level kids at CBS News, at the CBS Broadcast Center. Oh, and so I became yeah. a CBS page, and I had the little outfit with the eyeball on the collar, the whole bit. And I'd bring people in and out of the studio, and I'd work wherever they needed someone, and seated audiences At Ed Sullivan for taped television shows. Uh, Meanwhile, we'd go next door. We would drink. The show would be over. We'd come back drunk. We'd like the audience. Thank you for flying with CBS. (laughs) I mean, we were totally like bombed having a ball, you know, like just total goofballs. But CBS was horrible because we were really treated like dirt. Nobody would give you Hmm. anything to do. You were answering phones, getting people coffee. It was that real mid-century like grunt work. Like you were at the Xerox machine all day. There were some highlights there, of course. You know, I remember having to take Henny Youngman, the comedian. Remember take my wife, that guy with the violin. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I had to put him
1: in a taxi and bring him somewhere because he was too old to go by himself. And, you know, we did the morning news. So I would escort talent to the studio. So, you know, I'd meet Phyllis Diller. and, And then after CBS, a woman there who took a liking to me, who was a booker. And she said, David Brenner, the comedian, is starting a TV show. He's going to have a, a, a nighttime talk show. And I bet you could be a junior booker there. And so she made oh, a few wow. phone calls for me. And she was very gung-ho. They asked me if I wanted to be David's assistant. And they were offering me $25,000 a year, which in 19, I guess it must have been 86 or 85. That seemed like a real hell of a lot of money because at CBS, I was literally making like 10,000. <laughs> so I was like, I was like whoa, yeah, yeah. hit the jackpot. You know, I'm working for David Brenner. But he was a total nutcase. I mean, he was really crazy, neurotic, like God breast his soul, but he was difficult. I met interesting people and I met my connection to MTB. So this gal, basically, Lori Goldstein, I don't know how she knew that the news department was starting, but she knew that they needed someone. Lin- Linda Corradina, who was the news director under Doug, she wanted an assistant who had news experience. I had been working in CBS Sunday morning, and I had worked in the newsroom, and I had right. worked the, not the 4 to 11 typing prompter. She knew that I had some news experience more than maybe someone else would, and so she was very interested in that. I was feeling like, man, I've paid my dues, but like, I can't not do MTV. Yeah. MTV from go was an incredible place. I mean, it was like, everybody was cool. Everybody was young. I worked in the same corner with Doug and Linda, and it was crowded. There was no space. We were all on top of each other. I remember two people sat in a closet, literally, behind me. They, they didn't even have a desk. I think it was like a board over like two boxes. I mean, it was really bad, but none of us cared. Like we were like so yeah. happy to be there and the channel was just starting to really start programming. I worked at MTV for just shy of 15 years, but my interest always was to go into the talent part and to the assigning part is what they'd call it in news, the assignment editing. Yeah, I'm opinionated, no kidding. <laughs> and so- <laughs> I had always had a lot of confidence in my opinions. So I thought, I think I could handle this, you know, looking through shit and deciding what what might work or what might not work kind of thing. Dave Sironik was very supportive of me in the sense that when I gave up my assisting position, you know, I gave up a staff position to do the assignment editing, I went freelance Mm. and I didn't care, you know, because I knew that this was an important step. And then eventually they did have a headcount for me, but until they did... I started doing MTV radio. I was the first person to do that with Kurt. And we were doing that also out of a closet with a Uh reel-to-reel. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And Kurt, who I love, and I'd say this to Kurt's face, he would know that. I mean, he was impossible. He was crotchety. You know, I'd bring him stories. He'd go, oh, no, no, (laughs) And I'd say, okay, well, you know, look at these 10, and you choose the five. And whatever you decide you want to do, I'll trust your judgment, obviously. You know, you're Kurt Loader, and I'm not. And after a while, you know, we both got used to it and we both did it and we had a rhythm and it would be like, we would do it in 30 minutes every day. Like at the end of the day, it was the last thing we did before we yeah. left. You know, we'd, we'd say, okay, let's do radio, you know, kind of thing. But Dave purposely chose me, I think for that, because I think he was trying to cobble together a job for me. You know, he knew that I wanted to be in that mm-hmm. department and, you know, I wasn't getting what I needed from what I was doing. You know, I was paing for a while. I was I was doing a lot of different things. And so the assignment thing, when that finally really came out, really opened up for me. That was like a total, like that was a dream come true. I finally felt like I really am now doing what I want to do for a living. And I I right. have the experience yeah. to do it and I have the support. People that I worked with were very good to me. Other than my children and my marriage, you know, my personal family life, yeah. they were the happiest years of my life, really, at MTV.
0: How did you enter the the work in terms of the scope of it? And how did you grow it?
1: In the beginning, Tents of the Hour was like really just news briefs. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of room for much more. It was really just like today, I don't know, Nirvana dropped a record or so-and-so got arrested or, you know, there was new- it was news. But once we did The Week in Rock, then there was room to do like a magazine show. Then you were doing interviews on your own and we were doing things just for our show. The truth of the matter is, is that the talent was really all about news. I mean, it isn't to say they didn't want to yeah. be in the music department, of course they did, but the news was really giving them something. The news was really yeah. helping them promote and the video promotions people just were just all over it. I got things from everyone. I mean, on a daily basis. I mean, it wasn't just music. I got, you know, Ocean Spray would send me cranberry <laughs> juice and say, you know, can you do a story about a cranberry and an apple getting together for an Ocean Spray? I'm like, no, do you watch TV? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I mean- People would send me, you know, Ben and Jerry got a new flavor. They'd send me 20 gallons of like, you know, the new Ben and Jerry's flavor. And everybody would be sitting in one of those little kitchenettes eating ice cream all afternoon. You know, it's like everyone was trying to get on MTV News because they saw that it was Rolling Stone, but it was on TV kind of. Once we had the show and we were doing full length interviews, it was a place for people to go. Also, for when they got in trouble, if someone was having a real problem with something, In their career, you know, they made a mistake and there was so much of that. They would talk to us first. The pitching wasn't that difficult because I was fortunate enough to work at MTV. I mean, it wasn't like I'm coming from some strange like D-list place where I'm saying, oh, you know, Mariah, will you do MTV? You know, it's like everyone would do MTV News. It was really just a question of, you know, what did we want from them? Did we want to go to their house and would they let us in their house? And then you had to really finesse it and pitch it as we got better at what we were doing, we were kind of like pushing the envelope more and more saying, well, no, you know, we could do it in a hotel room, but why would we want to do that, Mariah? You know, we want to do it on your boat or we want to do it in your living room or the bathtub or, you know, (laughs) whatever. And, you know, that was where the, 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 pitching became a little bit more, you know, it relied on your relationships and your trust.
0: How did your role change from 10 to the hour to the arrival of the Week in Rock? And how did it impact the scope or the granularity of your work?
1: The morning meetings were hilarious. They were like TMZ Live before TMZ Live. Like the carryings on that would go on in those meetings (laughs) were so great. Because there was always the people, like, let's say, Mark Doctro, who'd be pushing Madonna all the time. And then I would be pushing the Counting Crows or I don't know, somebody completely different. There wasn't always a meeting of the minds about that. So you had to really like convince your your fellow news people like, no, 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 you're wrong. Like this is Dave Matthews is important. I know you think it's all Jay-Z all the time, but no, there is something else out there. I think that was really it. It was like we had a lot to choose from. And we had to make better decisions. Everyone should have that problem. We had to sit down and really say, okay, what is this show going to look like? And who's going to be at the top of the show? And it was crazy. I mean, busy, crazy, but I loved it. It wasn't easy, but it was great.
0: How did your experience with the city change? I would imagine (laughs) your, your card got punched a little bit.
1: I was very spoiled as an assignment director. People took me out to dinner everywhere. I was always at Nobu. I was at every restaurant you wanted to go to that you couldn't get into. I had tickets to any concert I wanted to go see. I was out every night. I think what maybe made it a little different for me being from New York was that I was excited and pleased and very grateful, but I was never full of myself and I never was really that impressed. If I had come from small town somewhere, it would have probably blown my mind I had been going to concerts at the Garden since I was, you know, 12 years old. And I think that's also why I was good at my job, too, was because I wasn't doing this to meet celebrities. In fact, I really didn't care about that terribly much. But it was a great time. I mean, it was a great time in New York. I did crazy things, like John Norris and I once had a take in sync. They were doing the tree lighting. And as a Jewish New Yorker, I never went to a tree (laughs) lighting. I didn't care about a tree lighting. You couldn't get me to go in Midtown at tree lighting night if you paid me. So here we are, you know, rushing through Rock Center, you know, girls chasing, you know, John, you know, because they recognize John Norris. And like, everyone's there to see and sync, And it's total mayhem. And, you know, we can barely get to where we want to go. I mean, that's a cool New York experience.
0: True status is when friction is reduced, right? When you can move through space, without the same kind of resistance of traffic or Mm -hmm. crowds. My sense is that's one of the things that I was occasionally afforded, but that 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 experience signifies, right? That's pretty special in a town of, you know, 10 million people sitting on top of each other.
1: Oh, yeah. Going back to my CBS days, that was one of the cool things I did, which again, I've never done it. I've never done it since, and I haven't done it ever before, was I had never gone to the Thanksgiving Day Parade. At CBS, I worked the Thanksgiving Day Parade. I was there at four o'clock in the morning, you know, making hot chocolate for executives' children and sitting on the bleachers and in the (laughs) rain, you know, with my CBS slicker on, you know. But it's like, again, this was a really incredibly cool New York City experience.
0: Were there artists or talent that you grew up loving, adoring, being a fan of that you got to interact with in your capacity at MTV News? The most important one was Elton John. I met Elton
1: John at a party I was introduced to him by someone who knew him. So he was more agreeable. He was so sweet and he was so kind. And I spent maybe five minutes talking to him. It was a little bit more than just a polite hello. And I got a picture of him that Kevin Mazur took of the two of us. Wow. I was so grateful that I met him and that he was everything I thought he would be. And that he didn't disappoint yeah. me. I had the same experience. Everyone at MTV knows this. I was in love with David Cassidy as a little girl. Right. And when he came into the building in the 90s, I that was where I was like, oh, no, I don't care. It's like I would have rather met David Cassidy than Prince. Like I was like, I have got to meet yeah. David Cassidy. And I met him and I have a picture with him. And he was also a super, super nice guy. Those were like dream come true meetings for me because, I mean, I was in a room with Mariah Carey a thousand times, but she didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. I met Tony Bennett. That was like really special. I always loved Tony Bennett. I met Howard once, Howard Stern. That was hilarious. I always, I uh-huh. always loved yeah. Howard Stern. I still do. So it's like the, the people that I met that meant something to me, that was special. I had a few of those really nice encounters.
0: Who were the artists you worked with the most that you sort of developed some rapport?
1: I really pushed the Dave Matthews band a big time. And I Ah. got to know Dave Matthews a little bit. And I got to know his A&R guy pretty well. That was a relationship that, again, meant something to me only because I felt the news department was a little bit, um, they had their own snobbery. About yes. what they liked and they didn't really want to hear about 100%. it if they didn't like them. That's right. And so you really had it like if it was something a little crunchy, you know, a little be- jam bandy, you couldn't really get them to go there. It was like a push. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I really pushed Dave Matthews and I finally got a story on Dave Matthews. I was like, you guys, come on. It's like every college kid in the world is like going to see this guy and it's like you're not getting it. I got tickets to see Saturday Night Live when he was performing at the sh- on the show and I took my sister who was from out of town with me to see the show. You know, things like that were cool. I went to dinner with George Michael. I had been to dinners where, you know, David Bowie was at the table, but it was like one of those nights of the round table, like he was 44 yeah. people down at the end, <laughs> you know? And I was just like, oh yeah, there's David Bowie. But I wasn't with David Bowie, you know? But this dinner was... With John Norris, George Michael, me, and there's and his manager. And it oh, was because it was during that period that George got busted in the park. That whole terrible story with him in the park getting busted yep, yep, for yep. cruising or whatever the heck was going on there. John and I went to his hotel first, like a couple of days before, I guess, and said, you know, we want to do a special. We want we want you to talk about this. You know, and we feel like we're the place that you should talk about it because You know, we're your 60 minutes kind of thing. And I don't think there was any doubt that he was going to do it. I think it was just, again, it was one of those things you had to massage it and you had to be really sensitive to it because it was a sensitive subject. And we wanted to make sure he really understood that we understood that, you know, this was important and it was going to be handled correctly. And of course, no one better than John Norris. I mean, to me, John Norris, to me personally, was my favorite on air talent. He did a great interview. I thought he really knew his stuff. I thought he had yeah. a wonderful disposition the way that he talked to people. He was just the best. So he, we did that. And then we went to dinner with him. And the dinner was just like a dinner. Like we really weren't going to talk too much about this because we kind of went to the hotel and sort of talked about it. But it was, again, more of that, like we have a relationship with you. We want to take you to dinner. We, wanna, we want you to feel comfortable. And I was, that was a pinch me moment. That that was one of those pinch me moments, you know, and he's talking about like vacationing with Elizabeth Hurley and like the Italian Riviera or something. It was something like that, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, am I supposed to know that? Like, really? Like, this is so personal. Like, really? He's talking about his vacation and, you know, his friendships and friendships with Elton John. And I mean, he was talking about things, but very personal stuff. I mean, just like day to day real stuff. There was one other time I went to dinner with the Black Eyed Peas when they were very starting out. Fergie wasn't even with them yet. You know, I was sitting next to Will I Am all night at dinner. I love to tell my kids this because they can't, they get a crick, they crack up and get a kick out of this. But he asked me out on a date.
0: Will, (laughs) of course, he did.
1: (laughs) He called me on the phone at the office like a couple of days later and, you know, said, you know, do you want to go out? And I said, no, I can't do that. I think I might have said I had a boyfriend or something. I don't know. I just, the whole thing was just like, no, this is too, this is too weird. (laughs) Yeah. Puffy was my guy at MTV News. I had the closest relationship with him in the department. And so whenever there was anything good or bad that was Puffy, you know, Dave would say, you got to call Puffy. And the good news and bad news of that was that, yeah, there were many good things Puffy. You know, we did with Puffy. We did a million things. But then there was also like the J-Lo gun Puffy incident right? (laughs) where... All he did was call me and yell at me on the phone. Like, you know, he'd call me daily and go, Neen, like, why is this perp walk footage on again? Like, how many times are you guys going to run that 10 to the hour perp walk footage? You know, he was really (sighs) mad. And I'd be like, look, you know, we got to do it. I'm really sorry, but it's like, you've got to let this run out. It's not going to be forever. It's going to run its course. But we had like a really trusting relationship. And when my father died, He actually offered me his house in the Hamptons. He goes, and, you know, you bring the kids, but just, this was really funny. He had this one caveat. He's like, bring the kids, but don't use any of that stuff in the bathtub, you know, where they paint the walls with it and stuff. Like, I don't want you to use any of that. And I'm like, don't worry. I don't think that's going to happen. It was beautiful to have been offered that. It was, it was meaningful to me. You know, it was like, okay, well, we really do have a relationship here. Like he cares, you know, underneath all this nutty, crazy, you know, news stuff. He's, he's a mensch.
0: I wonder if there's an artist that really was um, covered more, as it were. Madonna, maybe?
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe. Madonna, to me, was always very, like, niche in the sense you really couldn't get much of her. She gave you a little here and there, and it was always only to Kurt. You know, it was pretty tight with her. When Courtney barged in, and I was there when that happened, I was standing there, and I'm holding Courtney back, and Dave Cerrone yelling at me in my ear, no, 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 you know what? Let her up. And I'm, like, thinking to myself, really? Like, we're going to let her up? And I'm thinking, oh, you see, this is why he's in charge and I'm not. Because he sees yeah. that this is, like, the moment of all moments. But when Courtney got up there, it occurred to me, when I look back on it now, when I look at that footage, Madonna was really kind of boring. I right. mean, she really needed Courtney to come up there. Like, she was, like, a little bit, like, so controlled. Yeah. But going back to the puffy thing, he was involved in everything. And when Biggie died, I remember the night he did the the VMAs and he did, you know, every breath you take. Yep. I mean, he was begging me on the red carpet. Let me on, let me on. Nina, come on, I'm on the red carpet, I'm on the red carpet. And in my ear, they're like, they they didn't want him at that moment. They didn't want him. That was when it was for hard sure. for me on the red carpet, which we basically, I still think MTV, we invented that. I mean, nobody oh gosh, did a yeah. red carpet like we did before we did it. Nobody. And we rehearsed those carpets and we knew who was going to be on them, or at least we tried to know. But there were plenty of uncomfortable situations for me where I'm lying through my teeth. You know, I've got the headset on and (laughs) someone standing there with, you know, in front of me with, I don't know, you know, Puffy or whomever and saying, come on, you know, look, we've got so-and-so here. And I'm kind of like, oh, okay. Well, we're in a commercial break. Can you wait five minutes? Meanwhile, we're right. not in a commercial break. You know, like, I'm right. like, what am I going to say to this person? Like, the, you know, they're telling me in the truck they don't want them. Yeah. And they're standing there. And I'm kind yeah. of trying to keep everybody copacetic, you know, and not pissed off because they're insulted. Like, how yeah. can I be standing here and you don't want to talk to me? But there were plenty of times where we didn't. Mick Jagger and Brittany, I I was there for that, too. Shane's like, can you get, you know, Mick Jagger and Britney on, on you know, get them up together, get them up together. I remember going up to Mick Jagger and saying, you know, how would you feel about going up there with Britney <laughs> Spears, you know? And he was actually like a good egg about it. Like, right, I couldn't cool. believe that he did it. But, you know, you never know how those situations are going to turn out. Like, those yeah. were stressful situations on the carpet.
0: I have such admiration and reverence, and I gained a lot of it in the last six years when it was me and Ryan, and I was on point for a, in a whole different way. You had to run defense and offense. You were like a force field around the entire operation at all times, and from the all the flack that was incoming. Oh yeah, somebody would publish some dashed off piece of editorial, and suddenly you're blowing up. I always had the sense you were very good at it because you had thick skin, and you were like, eh whatever, this will pass. Did you have to shake it off every night?
1: No, no, I was just exhausted. I would right. book like a two-hour massage after the VMA. Right, right. I mean, I, I, every bone of my body hurt. You know, you were standing on your feet for four or five days in a row for yeah. 14, 15 hours a day. You were like, you were toast. I loved the red carpet shows. They were really fun. I was so proud of them. I thought yeah. we did such a great job. I remember you know, at one time at the Radio City, which was always, for me, yeah. the epitome. I mean, because again, as a New Yorker, here I am backstage at Radio City. It was such a beautiful place. And we'd have meetings on those gorgeous steps in the middle of yeah. the lobby there. And the artists would be performing on the, you know, on the top of the marquee or like yes. on 51st Street. And and I remember once the Mighty Boston's were playing on 51st Street. And I was just thinking... Oh, my God. Like, this is so great. Like, I was like, I was as excited as the fans were or like the Eminem performance coming down Sixth Avenue. Like, there was just things you were just like, oh, my God, like, this is something else.
0: One of my top three moments is I was working on the marquee. It was the year that Kanye took Taylor's Moonman. And I was stationed on the marquee itself and I left my laptop up there and we were just about, I mean, the place was empty and I said, oh shit. And the guy who runs the place, whoever it was, goes, just go grab it. And, and I walk through Radio City, nothing on but that ghost light on stage, place is closed up and I got it to myself. Hey, it's Benjamin. What with hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there's a lot to manage. Most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational transformation, content strategy, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization needs help creating or communicating effectively, facing uncertainty with confidence, or leading meaningful transformation. Visit benjaminwagner.com or email me at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. Were there always pre-show performances? My memory is that that was its own sort of unique negotiation because you kind of had to Suggest to the artist. I mean, it was a place to showcase up and coming talent that didn't quite have room in the main show, right?
1: Right. And the thing for me, unfortunately, was that I had very little say in that because it was really a corporate decision. The one year that I was annoyed, I pitched it so hard. I wanted Christina Aguilera for the pre show. It was right in the genie in a bottle period. Like she was so big and so adorable and so, I was like, oh my God. But I, there was someone, and I can't remember who it was, not Smash Mouth, but it was one of those we had twos. And everyone was probably fine with it except me, you know, because I really wanted Christina on that show. And so after that, I kind of realized, you know what, I'm never going to have a say in this. This is a music programming and corporate decision. And that's where the show, the pre-show had gotten so big, you know, like, People love the pre-show. The post-show was a little bit more difficult because the post-show, everybody was exhausted. People are leaving. Yeah, I mean, even the talent, I I don't care who they are. They're exhausted too. Like, you know, and so you're trying to get that together. And I always dreaded the post-show.
0: Did you see my body language? I hadn't thought about a post show in probably 10 years. And I was like, Ugh. I mean, the rest of the organization was on to the party. It was only news that was thinking about wrapping anything up at all.
1: Right. We were always stuck with that damn post show. And then if the show ended too early or something and we had to fill, you know, David say, well, you know, we got to fill 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, my God, we have to <laughs> look, we have to fill 20 minutes. You know, it's like that was just you pray that we only had to fill seven minutes. Yeah. And then you'd get Green Day up there or something. Someone who was always game, you yeah. know, and they would do it, you know. But it's like that was the post show was always like I was done.
0: I don't think Dave ever prayed for less time. Never. I like it's like if you could put live television in his veins, he'd be psyched. Oh, you know? at, oh
1: completely. One hundred. One thousand percent. He loved live television. Loved it. And you're right. He would have filled any amount of time that we had to fill. And he was ready for it.
0: I admired it. And I, I feel like I got a lot better at it. But initially I would be like, oh, I just have to kind of quietly to myself, steal myself because I'm not sure I ever felt more pressure than I did when I was in a truck or in a, in a control room.
1: Full disclosure, I'm a very anxious person, believe it or not, by nature. Yeah. And so I remember like leading up to the pre-show, I remembered there'd be days where I'd say, okay, it's coming. You know, and then it would be the day of the show. I didn't meditate, but I I really had to get myself ready to go. Because once you go, once you're let go, it's like a balloon letting the air out. Like you're gone.
0: I appreciate you sharing that, by the way. Um, To me, that was the greatest tax is the tax to my nervous system. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know how to protect it. You know, you talk about meditation. I did. I wouldn't have known meditation. If oh, well,
1: I know. I didn't meditate. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I was just, you know, I, I was just like, you know, red knuckling it. Yeah, totally. I feel like we were a family yeah. and we were together every day and we were laughing our ass off every day. There yeah. wasn't a day we weren't laughing. I love every single person in that department. It was the best time of my life. Up until that point, show business was horrible. It wasn't fun. People weren't nice and I didn't feel like anybody saw me. I was invisible. I was just like a, a cog in a wheel. And at MTV, I felt, even if I was answering Linda's phone, I felt like she saw me. She, there was respect.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, it's like if Doug was ordering blueberry muffins from the Cosmic yeah. Diner, he'd ask me and my friend Carol Ng, who sat next to me, do you guys want a blueberry muffin? You know, it's like, everybody was wonderful. It was like a, a yeah. great place to be. You know, everybody was like in it and happy and like definitely excited about being there.
0: What's the moment when you were like, holy shit, this is it. Pinch me how this happened. This is larger than I could have imagined or guessed or hoped.
1: It was one of the Grammy Awards right before I quit. I, it was like, it might've been like, 2001 it had to be 2001 or maybe 1999 i don't remember but odb old dirty bastard yeah, of course he kind of knew me i think because we had done a lot of a lot of like wu-tang stuff and basically he comes up to me in the backstage of the grammys and he says to me can i borrow your laminate i had a all-access laminate
0: yeah you did sure <laughs>
1: And don't ask me why I said yes, because, you know, he is the most unreliable nut job in the world, right? He was nuts, drunk, who knows what else. Takes my laminate, the next thing I know, he's on stage. Right. Remember that Grammy? Remember that thing where he he runs onto the stage and interrupts everything? Like, I don't even remember who he was interrupting. It was with my laminate.
0: (laughs) Unbelievable. I can see his outfit in my head. 100% and I got remember. the
1: laminate back, but I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, you can't make this shit up. Believe it or not, one of those moments was being on the Democratic convention floor. Oh, sure. For Bill Clinton. I was a big Bill Clinton supporter. I was always very much a political person. And I had never in a million years thought I would be in the middle of all those signs. You know, you see when you're a little kid, people jumping up and down. And I can't even explain it. It was just... It was an out-of-body experience. And when he came out, when they ran the movie where Bill Clinton meets RFK, like there's a one scene where he shakes his hand. For me, that was really something. I'm on the floor and like Ted Koppel is like, you know, six people away from me. The other big moment was also political was the MTV's inaugural ball. We were there all dressed up. And I'm standing there smoking cigarettes and talking to Richard Dreyfus. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, and I'm just saying this is really bizarre. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, what is going on? You know, that was another point where MTV News was at a place I don't think we ever thought we would be. What are we doing in the middle of politics? <laughs> it's like, what are we doing in the middle of like a presidential election? And we were very proud, you know, I mean, like many of us got Peabody Awards and I got a Peabody Award. Like, I can't even believe I got one, (laughs) but I did. We were, like, really working really hard all the time at that, you know. And I had a lot of unsexy work at that time because I was also bartering footage with the local news channels. Because MTV News was starting to need real footage of things. And so I would become friendly with, let's say, the ABC News assignment desk on Columbus Circle and I became friends with those guys. And then we finally ended up buying and having a subscription relationship with CNN. I went down to Atlanta. I met people from CNN. Dave sent me down there just as a a hello mission because, you know, they had been so good to us and we had been so good to them. It was a good working relationship. We had a good thing with them.
0: Take me to like your most outrageous MTV holiday party or party memory because they're, they're legend.
1: They were all great in the beginning. You were partying with the executives. I mean, this, this yeah. was the thing about MTV that made it different. You know, it's like you'd go to a party and I, somehow I'd end up at a bar at two in the morning on eight ninth <laughs> Street with Tom Freston and a bunch of other exec, like big executives, like big people. And I'm like, how did I end up here? And, you know, they're bumming cigarettes off me and I'm going sure. like, what am I doing here? Those parties were a lot of fun. I think the most fun one I ever had was, it was during the Letterman period when Letterman had a Velcro suit. Remember, he used to jump on the wall. hundred
0: oh, percent, yeah.
1: But they had a Velcro suit at one of the parties. And one of the executives with the Velcro suit jumped onto the wall. We were all bombed, you know. And I remember like, you know, false threatening him. I got this picture of you now in that Velcro suit, you know, hanging from the wall. The next day, I mean, everybody that came into work, it was like, we I don't know how any of us came in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were so hungover. <laughs> and it was kind of like one of those things where you go, you kind of say what plays on the road stays on the road. Like, you just don't talk about it the next day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whatever happened that shouldn't have happened, it didn't happen. <laughs> it's like, Just forget it. Oh, my God, but those parties, great. Certainly not like a a party like, you know, I've gone to many company Christmas parties and they can be really like, "Eh." you know, do I have to, you know, not these,
0: no, not these. They were legend, at least least for a while, because they definitely, um, they got, I mean, to your point, they got lamer and lamer.
1: It was like in the beginning, it was kind of like, I think the way MTV probably felt was like, wow, this is really fun. And this is going to keep morale up and everyone's going to have a ball and open bar and who cares. And, but, you know, at the end, when it started to like really, when they did start to pinch corners and it started to get very corporate, it it changed. I kind of think I left at the right time. I left in 2002. I was burnt out. I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I had two little kids too. And that Mm -hmm. made it even Mm -hmm. harder. But it was kind of like the stakes were just getting too high. Like there was too much competition. There were too many channels on cable and MTV was starting to expect too much. It's like now it wasn't enough if you had Mariah in her house. You know, now she had to be, I don't know, in the bathtub, making dinner, cooking scrambled eggs, standing on her head. You know, it's like it just it got to the point where you're like, oh, for God's sakes, like, really, I don't want to do
0: this anymore. It's too much. What makes a great MTV News colleague? What's the hallmark?
1: I think, first of all, we all were hilarious. We all had a great sense of humor. I mean, everybody did. Rhonda, Michael, Jane. Everybody was hilarious. I think we really all did love music. I mean, we all really, really did. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, there's no way that, you know, you could be a kid that grew up listening and loving music and end up there and not be like every day going, please the Lord, like how happy, who am I, how lucky am I to yeah. be here? Yeah. This is just the greatest thing in the world. I think we were all grateful. I think we all knew we had a good thing. I don't think there was a day that went by that we weren't happy that we were there. There was very little shit talking. I mean, you know, occasionally you'd get pissed off at someone or, you know, say, oh, why did he have to do that? Or really, You know, but most of the time we really were into it. We were into each other. We liked each other. We had fun. And I think that's why it was so successful. There was so much cooperation. We were all a team.
0: Mm -hmm. We really Mm -hmm. were a team. What's a life lesson that you picked up that you took with you?
1: I'd say, first of all, don't do a job you don't love. I don't want to sound like a spoiled brat. I was very lucky, but I also wasn't making a ton of money. I mean, I wasn't making a giant salary at MTV. I mean, it took me forever to make a living there. I was never making big, big quan, But I got up to go to work in the morning and I loved it. I think you have to love what you do, no matter what it is. I think you have to love it. And I think you have to feel respect in your workplace. And I think you have to give that to the people that work for you too. It all goes around and around and around. And I didn't see that in other places I worked before MTV.
0: What do they say that expression is? If you do what you love, you don't work a day in your life, Right.
1: My father, who never wanted to work for anyone and found work to be hard, work was work for him. He thought it was hard. Um, He couldn't get over how much I loved MTV. He was like, you are Uh, the luckiest person in the world that you love your job so much. Like, you are so lucky. You have hit the jackpot.
0: What do you think the legacy of MTV News is in the broader culture?
1: I think it's respecting young people and Mm. giving them what they want and its quality it's not just throwing them something we really believed that young people had a right to be able to identify with something that they believed in whether it was music or politics or whatever i mean i mean god mtv was everywhere right we were at spring mm-hmm. break with kids and you know they had mtv sports for a while and i think that everything mtv did was was really sincere it wasn't about ratings. I don't really believe that in the beginning. I really think it was about, I think this is going to be a great thing. I think yeah. this is really a great idea. I think that there's, the kids are going to love it. And they did because it really was about doing something that was going to be good. Yeah. I think that we really cared about what we did and it had to be authentic. It couldn't be phoned in or phony or... Because we knew the audience would know. And so everything we did was very authentic. And I think that's why it was so successful for so long. When I ended up leaving MTV, which was of my own volition, I left, which was nice. It's kind of like I felt like, you know, Mary Tyler Moore, I'm leaving on top. But I think the thing you have to really be ready for when you make a decision like that is can your ego stand it? Because, you know, you've been in 15 years of people not, not taking your phone call. And people offering you things to everything. And, you know, your identity gets wrapped up in you being like the assignment editor of MTV News. And I got to the point where I I have a a room in my house that I call, I call it my MTV room and it has all my gold records and I have a moon man. They gave me one when I left, which was really incredibly special and not everyone got one of those. And so I felt very loved and recognized for whatever I did there. And I feel proud. And I left with my head up saying, I'm ready to move on. I want to raise my kids and get out of this craziness. Those years that I was there was like incredible. I was there when the best times ever to be at MTV. It was a special time. So it's like, isn't that enough? Like, can't you go back on your life and go, wow, I did it. I did that. I got there all by myself. Like, and I did it and I worked there and I, I left with a with a trophy. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> left with a moon man.
1: What more is there? Like, that's, that's awesome. And I can go to bed every night happy, you know, saying that I had this really fruitful career there and it was enjoyable and I met great friends. I don't know if I could have ever topped that job anywhere else.
0: You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an Essential Industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts and visit BenjaminWagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative, coaching, and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.